Revelation 7 and at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne, and the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, without doubt, this is uh, one of the most uh, amazing portrayals of the joy uh, of heaven that you find in the Bible. There are various places, of course, in the book of Revelation, and some of those we're going to see at the end of our study of the book. But this is one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Revelation. As we were seeing, the book of Revelation is moving in, moves in cycles, and so it comes to a a completion of judgment and salvation, and then begins again by telling the story again and to re-emphasize that point. Last week we looked at something that was like two sides of the same coin. The church. We're looking at it from we were looking at it from heaven's perspective, the hundred and forty-four thousand. We looked at some of the theories as to uh, how that number some people get that number, but as you take Scripture as a whole, as you take reading Scripture with Scripture and seeing how these numbers apply in other places, you soon come to understand how you think in terms, how uh, this picture of 144,000 comes about. And we saw that the, the number 12 was used quite frequently in the book of Revelation to describe the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You couple those with the, uh, the number 1,000, which is a perfect number, as we saw, the cattle on a thousand hills are God. It, it's a word to describe an infinite number. Not just 1,000 alone, but an infinite number. So it's really saying, from God's perspective, that though judgment and tribulation and war and famine and demonic oppression 
will befall the earth between Jesus' first and second coming, there is a group of people that are going to be sealed, and that is the church. It's not, strictly speaking, Jewish people that are included in this number because the, 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 uh, the catalog of tribes there in chapter 7 is symbolic. It's symbolic of God's people in all ages. And so it speaks of using Old Testament language in the New Testament to describe the church. And so, in keeping with that, that's how we understand those images. So we have a fixed number that describes the church from God's perspective. And so Jesus says, All whom the Father has given me, I have lost none. I know my sheep. Or in another place, the Lord knows those who are His. And so the number is fixed. And so here, the number is a perfect number. Twelve by twelve by a thousand. And yet, when we come into verse 9, we see the same group from a different perspective. We might understand it this way. Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. In other words, not by you, but by God, right? He knows how many hairs are on your head. I don't, and neither do any of us know how many hairs are on our head. There are a great multitude which no man can number. For some of us, more than others. Uh, but it, it's, it, it's more than anyone can number. But God knows. He says, I, every hair on your head is numbered. So we're seeing that in these two images. From God's perspective, He knows exactly who are His. He has sealed them, and He has kept them. He has sealed them with the blood and the Spirit, and they will persevere unto the end. All the things that will befall the, on the earth will not imperil the salvation of these people. But John now turns to a, the same group from a different perspective, from a human perspective. And he says, when I looked at it, though God could number everyone, just as God knows how many sands are on the seashore, I couldn't possibly, from my perspective, know exactly how many people. There are a great multitude which no man can number. You remember earlier on in chapter 5 where you had uh, John being told he was weeping. Says, Who's going to open this book? And I wept much because there was no one worthy to open the book. And the angel said, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book. And then John said, so John is expecting to see a lion. And he says, when I turned, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He expects to see one thing, but he turns to see another. And it's the same here. John is moving from verses 1 to 8 to see one thing, and he turns and he sees a great multitude which no man can number. And so, this is, we're moving from verses 1 to 8 in terms of a symbolic number to verses 9 to uh, uh, 17 to a 
uh, the actual number, the number which no man can number. It's beyond counting. It speaks of the vastness of the church. But it also speaks of a church that is international, a great multitude which no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so we have this picture. We have an insight into what we can imagine the eternal kingdom will look like. We won't all be people cut out from the same cookie cutter. I will be me, and you will be you. You might not like that, but we'll be redeemed, so we won't have to worry about all the bad things about us. We will have our individuality intact. You will be glorified. The Bible says that. But when I look at you, there will be a continuity between this world and the world to come. And so we see Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus as Moses and Elijah. Their identities were intact. But the national identity of people will be intact. People from every race and nationality and language from all over the world will come in. Some as Ukrainians, some as Chinese, some as Koreans, some as Dutch, whatever it is. And the Bible says that the nations will bring their glory into the kingdom of God. So we're not all going to be equally, you know, look the same, talk the same, think the same. Our individuality will be intact. And that's a wonderful thing. It's not going to be an obliteration of personality. It's going to be an accentuation of who we are. And the nations will also bring that in. And Jesus is a redeemer of the nations. He's a redeemer of the nations. And they will bring their glory into the kingdom of God. And this is what John is seeing now, and he's rejoicing in it. That he's saying it's not just for the Jew, but it's for people all over the world. Friends, that's a wonderful thing. As John looks out over that sea, he can see, look, that, that's not a Jew. He's from here and he's from there. People, and they're all talking different languages and, and they all look differently. Apart from the fact of one thing that unifies them, that they all are in white. It's Jesus. Life, death, and resurrection that unifies them all together. Friends, the Bible speaks much about racism. Directly and indirectly. And when we look in on a passage like this, we see that Jesus is the redeemer of people from every nation on the earth. That's what he told his disciples. Go into the world and make disciples of the nations. Make this. That would have been crazy. That would have been radical to hear, for the disciples to hear that. The nations? Yes, the nations. Go! I love them. Go and bring them in. And so, what does that say to our hearts? What does that say to us as people from Prince Edward Island or from New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, from wherever we are, about people who are of a different nationality? 
with whom we're coming in contact from day to day? How do we look at them? How do we treat them? How do we talk about them? Do we treat them with suspicion or disdain because they're different from us? Are we threatened because the fabric of Prince Edward Island is somehow changing? Well, the fabric of Prince Edward Island has always been changing. God is doing it. God is at work. And here, John sees an international crowd of people. Well, that is true even going back into the Old Testament Scriptures. God spoke about the nations in many different places. In the Psalms, in the Prophets. He said to even to Abraham, the first Jew, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Jews should have known that. They should have welcomed that. But they became very inward looking. They became very nationalistic in the worst sense of the, the, way, uh, the term. But God is, was teaching them, is teaching us that the kingdom of God goes beyond the four walls of this church. And God rejoices to bring the nations in, to bring people of different languages and cultures, that the same Jesus can redeem and save whoever they are. Whether they were in, in Central America, South America, where maybe they've not, the first time they've ever run into a, a missionary or a, 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 a white face or whoever it is, and then they come to believe, they hear the message. We can think of the, 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 the cannibals among whom John Patton worked down in the uh, South Pacific. They were cannibals. And by the time his ministry was finished, much of the island was evangelized and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. What glory would have been in heaven to see those who were formerly cannibals coming into the kingdom of God. And so we see the number of the redeemed. We see the, 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 the makeup of the redeemed. It's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us in how we treat people, how we look at people, as we're moving around, as we're in Charlottetown, we see all sorts of different nationalities. How do we treat them? Do we treat them with respect? Do we see them through the lens of God's Word and God's Spirit? Or do we become excited in the fact that God is the Redeemer? God is making known. He is fulfilling His promise to Abraham who lived some 4,000 years ago. Secondly, we want to see the victory of the redeemed in heaven. The victory of the redeemed. Here I'm going to jump ahead just a, a little bit. Then one of the elders addressed me. This is verse 13. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Notice that the same language is used. Um, in Isaiah 49 about the exile. They're away in exile in Babylon. And Israel is despairing and God is saying, look, your tents are going to be enlarged. You're, going to have to, you're not going to have enough room to contain the people who are coming back. And then you will say, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren and exiled and put away. 
But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Do you hear the echo? Do you hear the echo with the, with the Apostle John as he's saying? Uh, then one of the elders addressed me. Who are these? Who are all these people? Clothed in white robes. And where have they come from? Isn't it a surprise to you? Isn't it amazing to see this great multitude which even you can't number? And he said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robe and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are those who are victorious. Now this idea of the great tribulation has, as I've said over the last number of weeks, been a dividing point amongst Christians. How do we identify it? Is it a certain seven-year period at the end of time just before Jesus comes? Or does it extend from the first to the second coming of Jesus? You may have a difference of opinion, but it doesn't really affect the, 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 the weight of what John is trying to get across here. I take the latter view. Again, if we take it in terms of what the whole of the New Testament says about tribulation and the suffering of the church, that uh, that tribulation period will be from the very beginning to the, set, the time Jesus comes back. And so Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you are sharing in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when he, his glory is revealed. Christians have suffered intensely from the very early days of the church, even up until the present. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says, Christians were thrown to the lions in John's day, burned at the stake in the English Reformation, hunted through the countryside during the persecutions in Scotland, sent to forced labor camps in communist China, and recently bombed during their worship services in Sudan and Nigeria. In other words, how do you go to these people and say to them, you are not going through great tribulation? No, we would characterize that as the whole period of time. But that, regardless of how you think of that, we're, we're now at a picture at the end of time. Whether that is a seven-year period or over a 2,000-year period, the point is that these people are now in an estate where they are victorious. They are victorious. And that is seen in the fact that they are in white robes, and holding palm branches in their hands. Waving palm branches was something that was done during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was, uh, had a twofold significance. One was that they were, uh, it celebrated their coming out of Egypt as slaves, and it also symbolized the ingathering of the harvest. Those two things taken together suggest why John is seeing now a great multitude with palm branches, waving palm branches in their hands. 
Because these people have come out of an Egypt. They've come out of sin through the wilderness of this life into the land of Canaan, into heaven itself. And they make up the great harvest of God's people from every language and nation, peoples on the earth. They're all gathered in the great harvest. The great harvest is now complete in this picture. And they are victorious. Again, John is applying to these, this great multitude the language and the images of Old Testament Israel. Where it's not Israel that are waving the palm branches, it's the Gentiles, it's Africans, it's Europeans, it's South Americans who are now gathered together in this picture. And how do they overcome? How are they there? What is the basis for their being there? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the basis for their victory. He doesn't say they're there because they struggled hard to overcome the tyranny of Russia or China or any of these things. As great as those things are. And that's certainly part of the book of Revelation. But they're there based on the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, died. And John uses a paradoxical kind of image here, making your robe white through blood. I'm always getting the dark sometimes mixed up with the whites. And uh, sometimes you put a dark in with a white load. and Oh, that's not good. But here he... He presses it home. He says, these people are in white robes because they've been washed. They've been put into blood. You can imagine. That's, that's just going the opposite way. But this is John's way of shaking us up and throwing cold water in our face and using these strange images to get our attention. And so we ask, how is that possible? Just like he said to Nicodemus, says, how can a man be born when he is old? That doesn't make sense. Jesus says, you must be born again. No, that, hang on, that's crazy. John will use these kind of jarring pictures to get our attention. And here are these people, this great multitude, who are there on the basis of nothing else but the fact that they have they've been washed. He's not strictly saying that in the eternal kingdom we'll all be going around with white robes on. That's not what his intention is. The picture is of a life washed clean of sin and iniquity. The wrath of God taken away. So John is driving home this point that if you make it to heaven, if you get to heaven, it will be on the basis of what you have done with God's gift of His Son in your life? Have I trusted Jesus as my Savior? Or am I trying to resist that and putting other things in place of it? My church going. The fact that I'm a good friend or a good neighbor or a good mother father. I'm all of these things and you're putting these to the fore. Lord, what about these? No. These people who stand with white robes and palm branches in their hand didn't make it there because of their inherent goodness or their diligence 
or their education, but solely on the base, basis of the fact that they were washed in white in the blood of the Lamb. So that's a direct challenge to you this morning. Most, if not all of you, have heard that message from the time you were little. And yet, we, I ask you again, as I will ask you next week and the week after, what have you done with it? The Bible says that there are those who trample the blood of the Son of God underfoot and outrage the Spirit of grace. Listen to that language. Well, how do you do that? You do that by hearing the message of Jesus' death for sinners and walking out of the church and saying, that's just too wild and crazy for me. I don't need that. I'm, too, I'm good enough. I'm too respectable for all that kind of stuff. What you're doing is you're trampling it, you're stomping it underfoot. And it's an apt picture because what do we do? What, how, what would enrage us the most by giving someone something precious to us and then throwing it on the ground and trampling it under their foot? Oh, that would... And so the spirit of grace is enraged by it. So, uh, so the opposite of that then is these people who are there strictly on the basis of the Lamb. They have white robes because of the Lamb who died. Jesus who died. So that, that means that we must repent of any other way of coming into the presence of God. We must get rid of it and come the way these people came. The way every believer down through the centuries has come. Through the cross. Is that the way you're coming this morning? Are you rejoicing in that? You see? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. None whatsoever. People can give their money, their estate to the church. They can be the best moral person they want to be. Nothing will, nothing will substitute. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. So you know you have been washed in the blood because now there is a joy. There is an exaltation in your heart. You say, I can't believe this. That I would be counted as a son and a child of God after all I've done and thought and said. That I now too will be standing in those white robes with palm branch in my hand and I too will, all because of what He has done, I will greatly rejoice. Friends, this is where the ceiling comes in that we talked about last week. The proof that we, have, that we are His. The seal is coming to the fore because there is a joy in our hearts. There is a resolution and a determination in our hearts to live for the One who lived and died for us. Can you say that of yourself this morning? He has clothed. That's why I will rejoice. Not because of my car, or my house, my money. Because He has clothed me in garments of salvation. Then there is the worship of the redeemed. The worship of the redeemed is found there in verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, they make this point that where does salvation come from? The one thing that separates Christianity from every other world religion is this word, grace. 
That, it, that our redemption and our salvation does not come from within ourselves. It comes from outside of us. And this is what they're celebrating. Salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, coupling together God and the Lamb as the ones who originate salvation. And then, lastly, there is the provision of the redeemed. You would think all of those things would be just enough for us to go away with and think about. But there's an important element here that God also wants to reassure the redeemed of. Not only will that number be gathered together there, not only will they be worshipers, but God's complete, holistic salvation will be seen in their lives. When they will be completely cared for in every dimension. Physically, mentally, psychologically, spiritually. And that's what these last verses are saying. And this is what has brought so much comfort to Christian people and people who have suffered a great deal down through the centuries to come upon verses like this and say, this is how far God will go, even to the last tier. That's the commitment. And he punctuates this vision of heaven with God wiping away the last tear from our faces. The God of creation, the God of this mass number of people that nobody can count, is now individually and intimately saying to you, I will wipe that tear from your eye. And that tear is precious to me. And I care about it. And I see it. Sometimes people don't see our tears. But God sees every one of them. But this is the provision that God makes. Verse, eight, verse 13, Therefore they are before the throne of God. I wonder if you have thought about heaven, what would be the first thing that would matter to you? Well, he talks about no more hunger and thirst and all these things, but for the real child of God, it is seeing Him. They are before the throne of God. They are standing before the One who created all things and loved us so much that He gave His Son to die a shameful death on the cross to save us. And so He says, the highest and best that can be said about heaven is that we are before the throne of God. Whereas the wicked in chapter 6 are fleeing. They're crying for the mountains to fall on them. Here, the, the redeemed are before the throne. Jesus prayed that prayer the, the last night of His life. In His high priestly prayer, He said, Father, I pray that those whom You have given Me might be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. And here is that prayer being answered. They are before the throne of God. So Jesus said to the, the thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. We don't worship God for His gifts. 
We don't worship Him because of the sunshine and the, the health and the strength and all. We thank Him for all of those things, yes. But we were made not animals, not like Pavlov's dogs who salivate at the sound of a bell because meat is going to be thrown in front of us. We were made for God. We were made with a spirit, with a soul. We were made to commune with the living God. That's who we are. We're made in the image of God. That's what he said in creation. Let us make man in our own image. If we think of heaven strictly in terms of the material, we've fallen far short. We're nothing more than, the, the, you know, we become just motivated by stimulants. No, there's something greater and deeper. They are before God. And serve Him day and night in His temple. In other words, we won't be sitting around twiddling our thumbs. It'll be a place of unadulterated, constant worship, constant amazement as we grow in our awareness of who God is and what He has saved us from. The intensity. You see, you, people might say, well, once you've been there a thousand years, surely you will get bored of worshiping. No. You know why? Because the more you're there, the more you'll grow. You'll begin to realize how holy is this God? How great is this God? And look at where I've come from. Look at what He saved me from. Your amazement, like the, I mean the angels, they've been there for thousands and thousands of years. Who knows how long? Tens of thousands of years? Are they bored? Are they finding something else to do? No, it says that they are joining in. And the angels were standing around the throne. They too were crying out. They too were spontaneous. They can't stop. And if they can't stop, surely we who are redeemed by the blood will not stop either. They serve Him day and night in His temple. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and guide them to springs of living water. In other words, he takes these elements as the, 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 the basic yearnings for people, even, even today. The idea of heat, the, the elements there. There's a big push on for energy. Energy wars. China, Russia, Ukraine, East Europe, and all these places. Who's going to get the oil? Who's going to get the natural gas? Because we want to be warm in the winter and cool in the summer and all of these things. The food supply, where's that going to come from? Wars, again, are fought over it. And the Bible is drawing our attention to a time that the Lamb will overcome and He will be victorious and all these questions will be settled. And He will attend to our every need. Whether it's hunger, whether it's thirst, whether it's heat or cold or whatever. He's, he's not giving an exhaustive list. He's talking to people in a, a land where these things were paramount. So Jesus says, He who comes to me will neither, nor, never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The psalmist says that people will drink from the rivers of God's delight, for with Him is the fountain of life. Friends, what a, a beautiful picture then God gives us of 
what awaits those coming out of the suffering of this life, all the sickness and the sorrow and the war and the affliction and the imprisonments, whatever else is thrown at us. Through faith in Jesus, friends, please, don't miss out on that. That is the key. That is the doorway through which we come into this glorious estate of not being hungry, not being thirsty, of being completely cared for. The Bible always drives us to the foot of the cross and leaves us there and says, what will you do with Him who hangs on a cross for sinners like you? Surely you will say, I will come by the way of the cross. I will exalt. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation who has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has made me white in the blood of His Son. And so I implore you this morning, as you look in, as God gives us a vision into the, into the heavenlies here today, also recognizing that in, that, in the, the centerpiece of that is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin, that you would say, Lord, give me the grace to come by Him, for there is no other way. Help me to be a part of that great multitude which no man can number. Help me now to show that I have been sealed in Him by rejoicing and praising and living for You for the rest of my life. Well, let's pray.